Thank you so much for this time to gather as a body, to gather as a church family, to gather, out, to gather as the called out ones. Lord, I pray that during this time together, as we look into your word, as we study it, as we uh, just examine it, I pray, Lord, that your spirit can convict us if we need conviction. I pray your spirit can encourage us if we need encouragement. Lord, I confess there's, there's nothing I can do on my own. I'm weak. There's nothing I can add to your word that makes it. God, I pray that you use me as a vessel. Again, it's not my words I'm proclaiming. I pray that it's your words. I pray I'm in tune with your spirit. And Lord, I just pray that Again, as we go through this text together, we can be honest with ourselves uh, before you, and we can just truly just call out on your name if we need help. We love you, and in your name we pray. Amen. And again, I'm just thankful for the worship team, thankful for Mark and his willingness to preach. And um, again, it, it's weird, as weird as this sounds, like it almost feels weird when you're not at church on Sundays. It's almost like I'm doing, like, okay, this is weird. Like, there's a whole extra day to the weekend. Well, like, I didn't, like, but so we had a great time of just relaxing, um, taking some time to be together and celebrate our baby that's, that's on the way. Uh, less than three and a half or three weeks, really, right from today. So uh, she's coming soon. But if you have your Bibles, Acts chapter 2. And I want you just for a few moments to use your imagination. Just, just try your best. If you don't have a good imagination, I'm sorry, but, but just try your best. I want you to imagine that you're stranded on a deserted island. I've been watching a lot of survival shows, so maybe this is why I'm going this way. But pretend you're stranded on a deserted island. You have nothing. You build a fire, you have a shelter, you find a clean source of drinking water, and you have fish that will last you a few weeks. So you're surviving. You're not thriving, but you're surviving. All your basic needs are being met, and you're waiting and waiting and waiting to see a boat off in the distance to flag it down and ask for help. Now I want you to imagine again that you, a Bible washes up on the shore, and you've never read it before. You've never heard of the Bible, you've never heard of God, you've never heard of Jesus, you don't even know what it is, but you start reading it. And you start opening up in Genesis and you learn about a God who created the world out of nothing. You read further in the Bible that you see that there's a redemptive plan for humanity, God's redemptive plan for humanity. You get to the New Testament, you read about this man or this God-man named Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins. And then you read the book of Acts. 
right? So you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. You read the Gospel, the good news of Jesus. And then you read Acts. And you get to Acts chapter 2, and this is what we read, and this is what we're going to be reading together this morning. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread and prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And as soon as you read that, you hear something, and you look up in the distance. Remember, we're still on the deserted island. Right? So you look up, oh, there's a boat. So you flag it down, you're like, I'm over here, over here. Right? The boat comes and saves you on your way home. You continue reading through Acts, you read through the epistles, you read Revelation, and you finish the Bible. And when you make it home, you say, I want to find a church to join. I want to find what I read in the Bible. So you go online and you Google churches near me, and you come across this random church called New Village Church, located right in Lake Grove. How convenient. Here's my question. And if you're visiting, I'll phrase the question a little bit different. But here's my question. Does New Village Church, does our church, look like the church we find in Acts chapter 2? I'm not here to give you an answer. I'm not here to tell you one way or another. I'm here to just read God's word and say, is this our church? If you're visiting, I want you to ask the same question. If you're visiting from another church, I want you to read this text, and as we go through it, ask yourselves, does my church look like Acts chapter 2? Some of us might be uncomfortable with this question. It is a confronting question. We are putting our church to the test. We're comparing it to God's Word, to Scripture. Right? But here's why it's important to ask this. Just because the word church is on a building doesn't mean it's a church. I'll say it again. Just because the word church is on a building does not mean it is a church. I'll take it a step further. There are times when God rejects our worship. There are times when God rejects our worship. Just because we call something worship or we bring an offering to God doesn't necessarily mean it's going to please Him. I had Matt read from, from Malachi. Malachi is the last uh, book in the Old Testament. And I read through it this week, and man, I was disappointed in Israel. Right? I'm reading it, and I'm like, how could they do this? And as I'm reading it, I'm slowly revealing in my own heart, this is me. This is me. If you have time, I want to encourage you, I want to challenge you, read through the book of Malachi. It'll take you five or ten minutes. There's only a few chapters but the whole theme of Malachi, it's devoted to what? To God's rejection of Israel's worship. Israel's prophets were guilty of a lot of things. They were guilty of questioning God, violating His commands, disobeying His laws. They defiled His altar. They are commanded to bring the best right before God. And they're, as Matt read, they're bringing the paralyzed or the lame or, or maybe the malnourished offerings before God. They were despising his name. They openly spoke out against their God. They even argued further in Malachi that being obedient to God's commandments doesn't do any good for you. 
that only the wicked and only the people who were proud were prospering. So what's the point of obeying God's commands? That's what they were questioning before God. Then their behavior brought forth a question, where did the fear of God go? Where was their fear of God? And because of this, Matt read earlier, God will not accept their offering. They foolishly thought, right, as long as we bring something to God, or as long as I, uh, okay, I'll bring this, I'll bring this, this animal to God. This, I guess that's okay, I'll bring that. Not my best one, I want to save that for me. But I'll bring this one over to God. And we see that God is not pleased with that offering. They're going against his command. They're thinking, man, if I give something to God, he'll have to accept it. But that's not what we find in Malachi. And today we can say the same about churches. Just because a church is open on Sunday, a church that claims to worship God, doesn't mean that church is pleasing to God. It's important to remember that the same God who we say keeps the doors open to churches is the same sovereign God who closes church doors. Also in Revelation, we see that this is the same God who threatens to take the lampstand away from the church in Ephesus unless they repent. So again, this is my question. This is my challenge this morning. And I don't want you to think I'm pointing fingers. I'm not. Someone said when you point a finger, remember there's three pointing back at you. right? So as, I'm, as you think I'm pointing the finger, I'm not. As I was reading this, I was getting convicted this week. I was like, man, how many times do I mess up? How many times do I complain about Israel and I'm Israel? How many times do I complain about the church and I can do something about it? It's easier to complain than to do something about it. So please don't hear me pointing fingers. Don't hear me playing the blame game. All I'm doing is this is what God's word says. Are we as a church, as a family, are we being faithful to it? Are we being faithful to it? So this morning I entitled my sermon, and maybe you have your notes in your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. A church pleasing to God. What we read in Acts chapter 2, starting at verse 42, we can see five characteristics of a church that is pleasing to God. And my hope and my prayer is that through this we can find encouragement, we can maybe find conviction if we need convicting, but ultimately this will draw us closer to God and closer to each other as a body of believers. So a church pleasing to God Five characteristics. And again, before I begin, this week I also was rereading. I read this book before. It's called Letters to the Church by Francis Chan. Maybe you've heard of it. Maybe you haven't. It's definitely worth a read. There are a lot of things in here that I borrowed from, and a lot of things where I was like, man, this is, this is some pretty convicting stuff for me personally. So if you're interested, I can have you, you can borrow this book if you'd like it. I read the first six chapters, and for me, I read this along with Scripture, and I was like, man, this seems like something worth sharing. So again, five characteristics of a church that is pleasing to God. Number one is this. We see a church that has devotion. A church that has devotion. Let's look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. That word devotion is a deep loyalty, a commitment Almost like an unbreakable bond, right? I'm, I'm loyal to this. I'm devoting myself to what? They had four things that they devoted themselves to. Just four. Apostles' teaching, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. 
So again, we look at the apostles' teaching. The early church, they yielded, they submitted themselves to the apostles' teachings. And you're like, well, what does that mean? I'll say it's the Word of God. As the apostles are teaching, as they are preaching to the people, they're getting help from the Holy Spirit. They're preaching God's Word to the people. When we yield ourselves to God's Word, right, us as Christians nowadays, when we yield ourselves, when we make it the ultimate authority in our lives, right, everything we, we do, we look at the lens of Scripture. This is our authority. There's edification. There's growth. There's spiritual growth. There's maturity. And if you remember, th- these groups of people, the they, right, in verse 42, and they devoted themselves, that they are new convert believers. It's the same they, those 3,000 souls who were baptized after hearing Peter's sermon. And Peter's sermon, as maybe you have to reread it, it wasn't a very encouraging sermon. He says to the people, this is who Jesus is, and you crucified him. And then it says, after he explains how, how the King David is, is dead and he's buried, and how Jesus isn't, and how Jesus is the Messiah, and it says they were cut to their hearts, and they said, Peter, what must we do? And he says, repent and be baptized. And it says 3,000 plus were baptized that day. So that's the they. These are new converts. right? They're, they're yielding, they're submitting, they're being loyal to the apostles' teaching. Why? Because they can grow in their faith so that they can grow in their knowledge and they can grow in their love of Christ. Again, God's Word has to be the authority over our lives. We have to yield and submit ourselves to God's Word. That means if it goes against my opinion, if it goes against, even if I preach something and it goes against God's Word, you better say, David, you're against God's Word. You better tell me that. And I better publicly confess and repent of going against what God has commanded. So again, the importance of God's Word. You see, the second thing they, de- they, they devoted themselves to was the fellowship. They were meeting together, not out of obligation, not out of force. No one was like twisting their arm and saying, you have to get to the temple. Go to church right now. No, they were doing it because of their love for Jesus and their, their love for wanting to grow, wanting to hear the word. They wanted to hear the apostles' teaching, their love for Jesus, their love for each other. And we're going to talk about this a little bit later in the text. So we'll come back to it. But the third thing we see them devoting themselves to is what? The breaking of bread. Now I think it can mean two things. It can mean they shared meals together, but ultimately I think it means they celebrated the Lord's Supper. They celebrated communion together. And when we have communion, it's a remembrance of the cross and that we are sinners who are saved by God's grace alone. That we cannot save ourselves. We need a Savior and Jesus is our Savior. When we take communion, communion, it's also a time of confronting our sin. We always have a self-examination period before we take uh, the elements because that's what Paul commanded the church to do. We didn't just do it because we thought it was a cool thing to do. It's in God's Word. And when you do that, it's a self-examination. It's a time of confessing, of bringing your prayers before God and bringing your sin before Him and saying, I give this over to you. I am sorry. And that's why it's important when we take communion to have that time to confess our sins to God, to ask for forgiveness before we partake together. And Francis Chan in his book, he says this, if communion has become boring, if communion has become boring for us, or maybe you come to church and you're like, oh great, communion, that's another 15 minutes added to the sermon, I have to wait another 15 minutes to eat food, this cracker's not going to fill my stomach. If communion has become boring for us, he says 
it could be that we've lost value of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. And I'm being very honest. Very honest. There are times where I'm like, eh, we don't have to do communion this month. We're, we're okay skipping it. We, we can do it. You know, we don't have to do it as often as we meet, right? And I want to just say sorry. I'm sorry for doing that. Sorry for feeling that way. I know there's been a bunch of you who have been asking, when are we having communion, David? I'm like, I don't know. Um, but again, they, ha- they met together. They had communion. They remembered what Jesus did for them together. They made it a priority and a habit to remember Jesus' death. We just sang the song, the Jude Doxology, and it comes, all those lyrics are through the book of Jude. And Jude encourages the believers to stand and to fight and to, to contend for their faith by remembering what Jesus had done for them. Use that as their encouragement, as their fuel to strengthen their faith. And I believe the early Christians, they celebrated communion as a reminder of how much love their Savior had for them. And I think that fueled them supernaturally to love each other that way to be obedient to Jesus' command. The next thing we see, the last thing they devoted themselves to was what? The prayers. Prayers. They were known as a praying church. If you have your Bible, just maybe flip one page over to Acts chapter 4, verse 23. So in between what we just read in Acts chapter 4, verse 23, Peter with John, they heal a lame beggar, and the people around are filled in awe and wonder. Peter then preaches the gospel at Solomon's portico in the temple. Peter and John, they annoyed the Sadducees and the priests by proclaiming Jesus that they actually had them arrested for preaching Jesus' name in the temple. The next day, Peter's questions, he's brought forth before the leaders, and he continues to speak out boldly. Now, this is the same Peter that denied Christ three times. This is Peter empowered with the Holy Spirit who preached at Pentecost empowered by the Spirit of God. They charged Peter and John not to speak out or to teach at all Jesus' name. They said, we'll let you guys go, but you better not mention Jesus again. And they say, sorry, I can't do that. And eventually they were released because they could not find another way to punish these two people because they, were just, they kept praising God. They kept proclaiming Jesus. And this is what we read in Acts chapter 4, verse 23. And I'll read it to the end of verse 31. And when they were released, Peter and John, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the, pro- and the people's plot in vain? The kings of earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city where there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Verse 29. And now, Lord, this is their prayer. Now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. We see Acts, this church in Acts, they were a praying church. 
they truly brought their request before God. Together, as a church, not just individual prayers, right? We, we are commanded to pray without ceasing, to have individual prayers, but we're also commanded to have corporate prayer, church prayer together. And we see the church practicing this. They weren't relying on their own strength or their power, but they continually pursued divine help. The early church believers, they knew that prayer was the source of God's provision for all of their needs. And when we pray, it's an acknowledgement that we depend on God, that we can't do it by ourselves. And because of these four things, right, their devotion to these four things, verse 43, and all came, sorry, back to, to chapter 2, verse 43. And all came upon every soul, and many signs and wonders were being done through the apostle. Because of their devotion to four things, God's word, fellowship, communion, and prayer, the people were in awe of God. And this word awe is a fear or a holy terror. It's not a fear of like, like oh my gosh, like, I'm going to get punished, like I'm going to cower over here. But it's a reverence of reverency towards God. It's a fear of, of knowing who God is and knowing God's nature and knowing who you are compared to the power of God. It's a reverent respect or a reverent fear of God. They were a reverent church. Not relevant, reverent church. It said that awe came upon who? Every soul. Everyone. It wasn't because of a special church building or they, they just finished remodeling something or any specialized outreach programs or evangelism or Sunday school or anything like that, but by the supernatural character of their spiritual devotion to these four things. And here's the sad truth. Many churches today, they come up with a lot of gimmicks and a lot of special strategies to keep people entertained, to, to get people to come in. A few years ago, there was a church, and you could find it on YouTube, but I would recommend not watching it because it's just, it's, it's sort of disgusting what this church did. They, they told the Easter story, but instead of using the Bible, right, that'd be the obvious thing to do, they used the Avengers. Now, if you don't know what the Avengers are, it's a bunch of superheroes like Iron Man, the Hulk, um, Captain America, all these different people, and they ended up crucifying Iron Man on a cross, not Jesus, Iron Man on a cross. And I'm watching this and I'm like, how could this church get so far away and look just like the world? I know churches that use secular music. They play secular songs. They sing secular songs together. There's nothing wrong with listening to secular music in the sense of, of enjoyment. It's a gift that God has given people to listen to music. right? Should we be listening to it? That's another conviction. That's a, a personal conviction. However, it doesn't belong in God's church. It does not belong in God's building. And I know churches that play secular music to draw people in, to make them feel comfortable, to encourage them to come in, to entice them. I know churches that say this, if you bring a guest, that guest can fill out a raffle card and win a free iPad. You're like, ooh, free iPad, okay. But the point is, churches are trying to come up with all these gimmicks, trying to come up with all these special ways to get people excited for church. But by doing this, the churches have created a cheap substitute for devotion. If we look at the early church, what excited them? Four things. God's Word, fellowship, the Lord's Supper, and prayer. That's what excited them to worship God. That's what made them stand in awe of God. So the first thing, a characteristic of a church that's pleasing to God, is a church that has devotion. 
The second thing we read is a, a church that's pleasing to God, number two, has unity. Verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And this is not a call for like a commune living, for taking a bunch of people and going into the woods and, and getting away from society. This is not a call for that. However, it's a call for spiritual unity and spiritual oneness. If you turn your page back over to Acts chapter 4, this will be the last time we flip it. Acts chapter 4, verse 32. After they prayed and their prayers shook where they were, we read this in Acts 4, verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of what? One heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. And they had everything in common. And with great power of the apostles were, were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon all of them. And I love this. There was not a needy person among them. If you notice something, the early church was made up of believers. They were made up of people who had the Holy Spirit in their hearts. More specifically, again, it was those 3,000 people who repented of their sins, who were baptized, who received the Holy Spirit. Nowadays, we see a lot of churches, they use phrases like this. We're the church for the unchurched. I'm like, well, what does that mean? Because church is for believers. Church means called out assemblies, called out ones. If we're called out of the earth and called out to be separate from the world, why should we act like the world? And I know churches that say something like this too. If church ever made you feel uncomfortable, come to our church. We'll, we'll make you feel good. We'll make you feel comfortable. Try ours out. And biblically, we see that church is made up of believers who what? Who come to worship God, who come to grow spiritually, and to be equipped to go out and to make disciples. Churches should never be catered around unbelievers. In fact, unbelievers should leave feeling convicted of their sinful condition before God. Now again, I want to stress this. Unbelievers are always welcome to come into church. We, we love having visitors. We love having people who are in the community come and to see what we're all about. But our services should never be catered around them. Jesus himself, he says, he came to seek and to save who? The lost. Jesus would hang out with sinners and he would hang out with even the most sinful of sinners, but he never compromised God's truth he never compromised his sinlessness. And he never compromised anything because he thought, well, that might offend somebody. Maybe I shouldn't call them out and sin. Or maybe I shouldn't you know, be so extreme to them or tell them that they're disobeying God. No, he didn't cater or, or change his message because he thought it might offend or make someone mad. And in the same way, this is important, churches should never compromise God's word to try to cater to unbelievers. The early church believers were united by what? The Holy Spirit. They were united by Christ. They were living for the same purpose. If you have the heart of a believer and a heart of the unbeliever, they're different. One is a heart that is dead. One is a heart that's alive with the Spirit. How could you ever have unity with an unbeliever and a believer gathered together if both of their purposes and hearts are different? You can't. That's why as churches it's important to stress they're made up of believers. It's only by believers that we can have unity. Only by the Spirit's power. And I'm going to say this. Unity does not come easily. 
Please don't hear me say just because you're a Christian you're going to live in harmony and peace and unity with everybody. You're not. It doesn't come easily. But that doesn't mean we give up. We should be striving. We should be working for it. In the next verses, we see how how the church maintained unity. But as a side note, Satan loves to divide. If you read through the New Testament, one way that he attacks the church over and over again is by trying to break unity and to cause division. Throughout the, the epistles, Paul, over and over again, he says what? Be on guard. Have nothing to do with people who cause divisions. Watch out for those people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10, he says this, I appeal to you, my brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree, and that there be, what? No divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and same judgment. And that's only possible through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. So a church that's pleasing to God, there's devotion, there's unity, supernatural unity. The third thing is this. It's a serving church. A serving church. Verse 45. They were selling possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So how did they maintain this unity? Through sacrificial serving and sacrificially loving each other, one another. They were a church that had an intense responsibility to bear each other's burdens and had an intense relationship with one another. They looked out for each other. No one commanded them. No one forced them to sell their possessions. It wasn't like the apostles were teaching, well, in order to be saved, you've got to sell all your possessions. You better give, give, give. Give us all your money. They weren't saying that. Rather, they were generously and freely giving up their possessions to supply and to help those who needed it as the needs came up. Again, I don't think there was like a public collection pot and it was like, okay, just keep giving, just keep giving. But I think as they heard of individuals who had a need, they said, I can help you. I, I can do that. I can, I can sell something. I can help you out. I think it was a personal decision, a personal thing. Through fellowship, right, through unity, they knew each other's burdens. They were able to supply and to help each other out. And today in churches, especially in America, Christians have adopted this consumer-type mentality when it comes to, to choosing a church to attend. We might use phrases like this. Well, does that church have a passionate enough preacher? Does that church have a, a good enough children's ministry for me? Does that worship team sing songs that I like, or is it all those hymns, or is it all those contemporary songs? We've made church into a spectator activity. We come, we sit in the pews, and we listen to a sermon, and then we leave. We see the church in Acts. They were a church that was serving, but a church that was doing, not just sitting on their hands, but doing. And it made me think of an analogy, and just bear with me on this. When I was in college and I have the jersey to prove it. I was on the ice hockey team. I played ice hockey. Right, I have the jersey. Here it is. Look, my last name's on it too. Right? I was at every game except one. I had all the equipment. I had my hockey stick. I went to warm-ups. I went to practice. I went to every single game. Now, I left one thing out. I was a bench warmer. What that means is I went, I warmed up, I skated, and then... When it came to playing the game, this was me.
And as my teammates were coming back to the bench, they were coming and skating and they were sweating, they were exhausted, they were gasping for air, drinking water. Here I am on the bench, I'm shivering. I'm like, Ugh, like because it's on ice. And I'm like, uh, when, when can I play? Oh, you'll play the last 10 seconds of the game. Oh, crap, I'm so glad I paid money to be here. This is great. Now bear with me for, an example, for this example. Right? I wanted to play. I did not want to be on the bench. I didn't like sitting there. I was humiliated. It was humiliating. It was boring. It was freezing. It was chilly. I'd go home and I was like, I don't even have to like shower or change my clothes. I can just go right to bed. I did, I did nothing. Instead of watching from the stands, I had a better seat and just watched like this, front row. Now imagine if the coach told me, David, you're in. And I was like, I don't really want to. I'm okay, I'm okay sitting here. You guys are doing a great, you guys are doing a great job. You keep, you keep playing. I'm enjoying my time watching. Right? You'd say, that's, that's crazy. What are you even doing on the team? I think this, some of us are happy being bench warmers when it comes to church. Right? We never get up. We never serve. We never get involved. All we care about is just sitting, listening, watching, and leaving. I know I'm guilty of it. I'm not sitting up here saying, you are guilty. I'm guilty of this. Instead, we ought to come to church fully expecting to serve one another. God has given each one of us a spiritual gift to use for His glory, to use for the building of His church, the building up of His church, and that gift to serve one another, to serve Christ and to serve each other. Could you imagine how differently churches would look if we all came with this attitude found in Philippians chapter 2, Paul says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you not only look to your own interests, but to the interests of others. The early church in Acts depicts a church made up of believers who truly loved one another and served one another. Not one of them was in need. And I read that and I'm like, that means I have to do stuff. That, that means I, when someone calls me and asks for help, I can't just say, don't you know who I am? I'm David. I, I, you know, I'm, I'm at church every day. I, I can't be here helping. No. Pri pride and, and a proudful heart is the enemy of serving. Pride is the enemy of humility. Paul says, count others more significant than yourselves. I love this church family found in Acts chapter 2. I can just picture it was made up of people who were unashamed to bring their request before the church. Sometimes when we have a need, we're, we're shy. We're like, ah, I don't, no one's going to help me. I don't want to bring it over to the church. I don't want to burden anybody else. But one of the one another commands is what? Bear one another's burdens. And also, cast your anxieties, cast your burdens onto God because he cares for you. He can take your burdens as well. Francis Chan, again, in, in his book, he said this, When servants gather together, everyone is built up. When servants gather together, everyone is built up. Why? Because everyone's too busy trying to serve each other, trying in, in humility put others before themselves. How can I serve you? Not how can you serve me? So the church in Acts was a serving church. The fourth characteristic of a church that's pleasing to God is they prioritize togetherness or fellowship. A priority of fellowship or togetherness. 
Verse 46, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. The early church regularly met. I don't know why I always use that word because I can never pronounce it. They regularly met together. How? How or when? Day by day. If they weren't in the temple worshiping together, sitting under the apostles' teachings, being devoted to them, they were where? In their, each other's homes, having meals together, celebrating the Lord's Supper together as a body, as a family. And then we, we see their heart, their heart behind this. They didn't, again, do it out of, because I have to do and I have to be obedient. They received their food, how? With glad and generous hearts. That word glad is to rejoice. That word generous is the same as selflessness. So they were humbly putting the needs of others, having people coming into their houses. I'm sorry if you're an introvert. I'm an introvert. And when I read this, I get a little afraid. I'm like, "Uh, that means people have to come into my house. That means I have to hang out with people. That means I have to be together. Yes. And it shouldn't be out of obligation. It should be how? Out of joy. They had a correct heart attitude towards one another. They were a joyful church. They weren't like, oh, prayer meeting tonight? I have to go because someone asked if I was going, so now I'm, I feel like I have to go. Or there's a fellowship lunch after church. I, don't, I, don't, I just want to go and have my own lunch. I don't want to come. There, there, I'm, I'm telling you, there are times where I'm like that. Sometimes I'd rather nap after church on Sunday than go out to eat. Shame on me. They were a church that prioritized fellowship. They wanted to be together. They were a church family. Church is not meant to be a once-a-week thing that we go to because, hey, that's what a good Christian is supposed to do. If that's your view of church, if that's our view of church, we're missing so much that Christ has to offer. Like the early church, we should be prioritizing fellowship, prioritizing togetherness, with one another and not neglecting to meet with one another, which is found in Hebrews, which is a command found in Hebrews. It's hard to serve one another when you don't see one another. And here's my question Is it a joy to be in fellowship with one another, or have we made church into an obligation? Have we made church, and when I say church, I mean fellowship, I mean gathering together. Have we made that something that is like, well, if I'm not busy, then I'll go. But if something comes up, then count me out. I've got to do this first. Or maybe you, you show up late. You're like, man, how, how late can I get to church to say I was still there? Then how early can I leave to say, okay, bye, I heard the message. Great, okay, see you guys next week. Right? They made it a priority. They did life together. They didn't meet once a week. They did life together. And I want to share, again, a little, a little story. I didn't know my family was going to be here. Um, so growing up when I was about 12 years old, I played roller hockey. I was not a bench warmer. Um, I played roller hockey, and we made it to the championship game. And my dad was the coach, and the game was on Sunday during church. I said to my dad, I was like, so we're playing in the game, right? He said, no. I was like, are you serious? We're not going to the game? It's the championship game. Why can't we go to the game? He said, because we have church. And I was like, uh, he, maybe he's joking. Maybe he's playing. So the day of, we get to church. And I'll tell you what, I was not joyful to be at church at all. Did we end, I think the team ended up winning still, so we got a trophy or, or something. But 
I wanted to be there rather than church. Now, growing up, I'm not telling us to give up. Right? I'm not, this is not to, to guilt anybody to say, if, if something comes up, you can never miss church. But what I'm saying is where my heart was at the time. I was 12 years old. And I'm glad my dad instilled this attitude because it wasn't until years later where I was like, okay, that's the point he was trying to make. I get it. I get it. It wasn't because uh, like, you have to be at church. You can never miss a church service. It was, David, where is your priority? Where is your heart? If you'd rather play hockey than gather with fellow believers and worship the Lord, remembering what Jesus has done, how much you've been forgiven, how much he loves you, then you have a heart problem. And I'll honestly say it took years and years, and we still joke about it to this day, but it took years for me to finally understand the moral of that story after being upset and angry for a little bit. Again, church is not meant to be once a week. You have to go, and you better put on a smile. If you're not happy, you better put on a smile. God doesn't care if you attend. He cares more about your heart. So you can come to church every single week, but if you're like this, Hi, good morning, how are you? So Wow, it's so nice to see you. Hey, oh, I'm good, you know me, God is good all the time. And you're like, I can't believe it. And could you, why, why would they do this? Right? If that's your attitude towards church, God doesn't care if you're here every day. He cares about your heart. We see the early church in Acts. How did they receive each other? How did they worship with each other? With glad and generous hearts. Listen, this is not something I can, I cannot change your heart. I can't force you into fellowship. I can try to encourage you strongly, but I can't change your heart. This is something you need to get alone with God with if you're struggling with and say, God, help me. Transform my heart. Help me long for fellowship. Help me want fellowship. Help me to be joyful during fellowshipping. I remember when Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Here's the King of kings, the Lord of lords, their Savior, their Rabbi, washing the disciples' feet. After he does this, he says this, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now, washing feet was a slave's job. It was the, the, the worst, of, like the lowest of the low job you could possibly do. The most humiliating thing the King of Kings and Lord of Lords could do for someone. And Jesus says, For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done for you. A church that follows Jesus' commands can't help but to serve one another in joy and in love. Jesus didn't just wash his disciples' feet and was like, oh my gosh, how could you guys have such dirty feet as we're about to partake in in my last supper, my night before the cross, you're coming with dirty feet? That wasn't his attitude. His attitude was what? Joyful and lovingly, in humility, putting the disciples before himself. And I say all that for this. We could be a church that's full every Sunday, a church that has a thousand people, but if our hearts are not in it, God's not interested. We're not serving as Jesus served. We're not having fellowship as we're commanded to have fellowship together. It's just a superficial meeting of putting on a mask and pretending. Again, a church that follows Jesus' commands can't help but to serve out of joy and out of love. And finally, we get to the last one. So five things, five characteristics of a church that pleases God. One is devotion. Two is unity, three is serving, four is a priority of fellowship, and the last one is this, 
praises God. A church pleasing to God praises God. Verse 47, Praising God and having favor with all people, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And you might say, okay, well that's, really David, a church that's pleasing to God, praises God, that, that's kind of obvious. I think given the culture of an American church, it's not obvious. Sadly, it's not obvious. It has to be said. Are we a church that praises God? Or do we just go through the motions? While worshiping and doing worship practice, I had somebody say to me recently, I said, all right, guys, we just practiced. Let me, let me pray real quick. And he said to me, David, don't pray real quick. You pray as long as the Spirit tells you to pray. And I'm like, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to say that. I'm sorry. Right? Or when we were singing, we were practicing holy, 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 right? We sing that hymn over and over and over again. And for whatever reason, the same person said to me, do you understand what we're singing? We're coming before God, or it's the, it's the picture of Revelation chapter 4, coming into God's presence. All of heaven is shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Sometimes when we sing, we just go through the motions. And, and worship and praising God is not just done through singing. It's done through the preaching of his word. It's done through serving one another. It's done through fellowship with one another. The early church, through their devotion, their unity, their serving, their fellowship, through all of that, they praised God. They had favor with all people. They were an attractive church. Other people looked at it and could not help but like it. They're like, man, look at that church over there. I want to be a part of that how they were serving, how they were together, having unity, their devotion, it made them attractive. It made them have people longing to be part of their body. And then we see this last phrase, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So they were also a growing church. That phrase day by day, it's a, it's a continual verb. It's not just like, okay, they did all this, and then one day God just put in, you know, a hundred more people. It was every day, day by day. And when you read through the book of Acts, that's a common thing you see. The Lord added, the Lord multiplied, the Lord increased. It's the Lord that builds his church. They didn't have any sort of programs. They didn't have a children. well, maybe they did, but we don't see they had a children's ministry, right? They were together. They had unity. There was fellowship. It was God's word alone, that made them attractive, that made them want to be a part, made people want to be a part of that church, and God added to their number. That's why I say, okay, I think this church was pleasing to God. Why? Because he was building it. He was increasing and building his church. And here's an encouragement. I'm not responsible for building New Village Church. You're not responsible for building New Village Church. The Lord is. However, that doesn't mean we sit and do nothing. Faith causes us to act. Faith causes us to get up off the bench and to serve, to get up off the bench and long to be together, to get up off the bench and to go out and to make disciples. We want more people in the church, not to just feel good and have more people in the church. We want more people in the church because then we know they're hearing God's word. We know that their hearts are being transformed, that they receive the Holy Spirit, that we will be with them forever in heaven glorifying God, that they won't be in hell for an eternity. 
We don't just build a church to make ourselves feel good or because that's what we're supposed to do. No, God builds this church, but we have a role to play in it. We shouldn't just be sitting on the bench like this. All right, God, when are you going to build your church? Come on. When are you going to do it? We have to be active. We have to do something. We're commanded to. Jesus says, go out and make disciples of all nations. Not stay in. Not stay in and sit and, and have people come to you. Go out. And that phrase is, as you are going. So, as you are working, as you are going to school, as you are going shopping in the grocery store. I won't say any names, but somebody told me that they met somebody in the grocery store while shopping for a gift, and they invited someone to our church, and they came to our church. And I'm like, why don't I do that? What, what? I didn't know it was so simple. Why? I had never even tried. And I was, I was so excited, but I was also convicted. I was like, man, I'm on staff. I'm a youth minister. I'm a minister of the church. I'm up here preaching, and I don't even tell people about Jesus in the grocery store. And they did? I'm like, holy cow. Again, they were a church that was growing, a church that was praising God, but they were a church that was doing something. They weren't just sitting and making disciples by sitting and doing nothing. They were going out and making disciples. Again, this early church, they were faithfully worshiping God, faithfully worshiping Jesus, serving Jesus, serving each other, and as a result, what? God continued to grow his church day by day. And this is where it gets a little scary. It's worth asking the counter question. So if God faithfully builds a church that's being faithful to him, then if our church is not growing, if our church is not getting added to, if our church is staying where we're at, it's worth asking, are we pleasing God? Are we being faithful to God? And again, I'm, I'm not giving an answer. I want you to think about it. I just, or we just went through Acts chapter 2, looking at the early church, looking at these new converts who were on fire for Jesus. There are times where I remember back, and I'm like, man, what happened to my flame? Usually when, when, you, when you give someone the gospel and you see that they get it, they're on fire, they're reading their Bible, they're like, oh my gosh, David, did you know this? Did, I have a youth group, but did you know this, David? Did you know that? And I was like, yeah, I knew that. And I'm like, but where was my excitement? I want what you have. And the encouragement is, we can. We can. Remember, Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, I will take my lampstand unless you repent. So God's not done with us just because we mess up. God's not done with us because we are sinners. We're always sinners. We're always going to sin. We're going to mess up. But the beauty of the cross is that we have a Savior. Jesus came. He died for our sin. He made a way for us as a sinful being, as a sinful creation, to come before a sinless creator and to have a relationship, to have forgiveness and mercy. And we see this early church, I see it as an encouragement. This is what our church could look like. This is what all churches could look like. This is what a church that's pleasing to God looks like. But let's not pretend that it doesn't involve us or it doesn't require us to act. It does. And next week, Lord willing, I'd like to preach through what a church member or what a believer that's pleasing to God looks like. Right? This is what a church that's pleasing to God should look like. Devotion to the, to the word of God, to fellowship, to, to communion, um, I forgot the last, to prayer, to unity, 
to fellowship, to serving, to praising God. But what is a church member? What is a church? What is a believer that's pleasing to God look like? As I mentioned, our church can keep preaching over and over the same theme, right? We need to be more loving. We need to be praying. We need to be doing more of this. But that's on you. We, we can't force you. That's where you need to get along with God and say, God, I need help. Or God, thank you that, I'm, that you blessed me in this way, but help me in another way. And here's my challenge. Again, I ask this question. Is New Village Church, or if you're visiting, is your church like this church in Acts? Are there any areas that our church needs to grow in? Are there any areas that we're doing really well in? Right? But if there's areas that we're not, don't just say, oh, someone else has to deal with it. No. It's all of us. We. Sometimes we grow numb and sometimes we grow stale in our faith because we really forget what Jesus did for us. Sometimes I make the story, this is me, sometimes I make the story of the cross like a cute little story. I'm like, man, Jesus loved me so much he died on the cross for me. How wonderful. Right? But on Good Friday when we take communion, we focus on the agony, on the pain, on the death, on the torment, on the shame. Jesus was spit on. I don't know if you've ever been spit on before. I don't think there's a, a more degrading thing you could do to someone than to spit on them. He was made fun of. He was mocked. He was beaten an inch of his life. He was nailed to the cross. Why? For your sin. For my sin. Because of his love and his grace. I think sometimes we grow stale in our faith. We grow stale as a church because we just go through the motions. We also sang the song, We Believe. Let our faith be more than anthems, greater than the songs we sing. So that means when I sing, How great is my God, we love you, Jesus, thank you for dying for us, let it be more than an anthem. Let it be in our hearts and in our minds. Let it guide us closer and closer to Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you're like, okay, this was not what I expected. Maybe you're a visitor and you, and you don't know Jesus. And you're like, am I supposed to be in here? I don't know. Yes, you're supposed to be here. Yes. If you don't know Jesus, the Bible's clear. You're dead in your sin. We're dead. Without Christ, we're dead. We're on our way to hell, eternally separated from God, from our Creator. But we know God made his love visible. God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died on the cross for our sins, for my sin. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. And the Bible says if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Peter preaches, you crucified Christ, you crucified the Messiah. Peter, what do we do? He says, repent. Turn away from your selfishness. Turn away from your sin. Surrender your heart to Christ. Say, I can't save myself. I can never save myself. But I don't need to because I have a Savior whose name is Jesus Christ, who loved me so much he took on my sin, took on my death penalty on the cross. His amazing love and his amazing grace. Let's pray. God, we just come before you as your body, as your church, 
as brothers and sisters united by Christ's blood. And we just thank you. We thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to gather and to fellowship, to gather and to serve one another, to gather and to break bread, to gather and to praise you. I pray, Lord, that just through your Spirit we can be honest with ourselves, we can be honest with each other. I pray if there's areas in our life, Lord, that we just read in in your Word that we need help in or that we need to do better in or that we have to honor you in, I pray that your Spirit will convict us, but also we know that you will equip us to do that. God, I also pray that we can find encouragement. Lord, I pray that as we look at this list of a church that's pleasing to God, we praise you that there might be one or two that our church excels in one of these areas. But Lord, I pray that we're a church that's known for our love for you and our love for each other. I pray that when people come to this church, they see two things, our love for you and our love to be with each other. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that it's trustworthy, that it's true, that you've revealed yourself in this way to us. We thank you for giving us a Savior. Jesus, we thank you for willingly going to the cross on our behalf, for taking our death penalty that's due because of our sin. You took the wrath and you took the just or the justice of God on our behalf that was due to us. I pray if, if we've just become stale in our faith and, and, and stale in our joy and our passion, I pray that we remember what you've done for us. We can read your word and remember that just seeing what you've done for Israel, as we sang earlier, remember that you're seated on your throne, that you are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I pray that we don't make church a thing that we go to, but we remember that we are your church. Lord, I pray that even in our faith, you can cause us to act and cause us to be obedient to your word and your commandments. We love you so much, and I pray, Lord, again, you forgive us at times when we haven't put you first, when we haven't made you the priority of our life, when we put idols before you. We just ask for forgiveness for that. I know personally myself, I ask forgiveness for that. Jesus, we love you and we praise you, and in your holy, precious name we pray. Amen.